Uh, we're calling this Shield Masters 2 Intro to Apologetics. Uh, there is no story about a made-up girl named Emma this time, hopefully to spare me from my nonsense crocodile tears. Uh, but today what I'm wanting to cover with you is a very basic, basic introduction to apologetics. Uh, if you don't know what that is, fantastic. You'll at least learn that. Um, I will do my very best to at least give you a 10,000-foot uh, flyover of what it is and a few examples of how it can be implemented. Um, okay, so previously on Shield Masters, we focused on defining faith. The defining verse in the Bible we used was Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1. Uh, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. Uh, we kind of tried to break that down as best we could, and I translated it myself as best I could as the faith, faith is being sure of God's promises because of the factual evidence confirming what God has already done uh, that we don't tangibly see. To simplify that even further, faith is being sure of God's future plans by knowing what he did in the past. We also briefly covered faith's role as a shield, as it is stated in Ephesians 6.16. Uh, in the ESV, that is, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, other versions would state, say, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, still talking about extinguishing flaming arrows in this case. And then the KJV, above all, take up the shield of faith, wherewith ye, good word, shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So, kind of going back, faith is the insurance of God's plans by knowing what he has done previously, and we are to use that knowledge as a shield for our Christian belief. Uh, the shield it's mentioning, uh, there's many shields that you can see in history. Uh, specifically, we're looking at the word uh, thurios, which I thought I had notes on this. That's okay. Uh, Thurios is a shield, uh, but as you can see here specifically, is the more akin to the heaven oblong Roman shield. Uh, properly, the word by itself properly means a gate or a door or door shaped. Uh, this is, means the use of a, a large oblong ancient Roman shield, which looked like a door, enough to provide full protection from the attack. That's the key word there is the full protection. It wasn't, you know, something small. It was something that covered all of you. So that's the analogy we should be thinking about moving forward. Um, some examples of this. Um, this is from McLaren's Expositions of Ephesians. Uh, there were two kinds of shield in use in the ancient warfare. One was smaller, carried upon the arm which could be used by a movement of the arm for the defense of threatened parts of the body. Uh, the other was large, planted in front of the soldier, fixed in the ground and all but covering his whole person. It is the latter which is referred to in this text, as the word which describes it clearly shows. That word is connected with the Greek word, meaning the door, and gives a rough notion of the look of the instrument of defense, a great rectangular oblong being which a man could stand untouched and untouchable. And that is the kind of shield, says Paul, which we are to have. No little defense which may protect 
some part of the nature, but a great wall, which he behind who behind which he who crouches is safe. Um, just a brief uh, picture example of this. The one on the left is the earliest uh, version we see of this kind of shield. Uh, it is uh, the specifically the Thureos, uh, which was made popular, ironically enough, by the Seleucids. Uh, who any readers of Maccabees would remember was who was occupying Israel at the time of the Maccabean revolts. Uh, and if you were a second temple Jew living under Roman rule, you would certainly recognize both of these shields, uh, your recent ancestors having seen the Thurios more so and then the Roman version, which was also called the Scutum. Fun word. Um, so... Having those terms kind of cemented in our mind, knowing what faith is and how it should be used, uh, we then turn to 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 uh, for more of how to use them. Uh, the verse reads in the ESV, Now who is there to harm you if you who are zealous for what is good, but even you should suffer for righteous sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord as holy. Always bring prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is every apologist's go-to verse when defending the purpose of apologetics and for good reason. While not everyone is called to be a full-time minister, necessarily, Peter says that every Christian is called to give a reason for their hope in Christ. Uh, First Peter was written to a persecuted Christians living in five regions throughout Asia Minor, detailing the behaviors they should put into standard practice, such as repaying evil with goodness, loving one another, and what biblical marriage looks like. Notice here specifically how much behavior is mentioned. Gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, all to further protect the believer from further harm when those who wish to hurt them are looking for any excuse to do so. And even then, if the believer does suffer, then it is for God's glory and not due to any sin on the believer's part. Note that this is not... This is not addressed everyone... Oh, this is addressed to everyone. This was not for the fancy class of Christian. This was for the layman as well as the king. This was for all. So here we see the Greek word, uh, going back one, where it shows here always being prepared to make a defense. That word is, as you may have guessed, uh, apologia, or apologian in this specific context. Uh, apologia is a speech in which a speech in defense, uh, in a specifically a verbal defense, particularly used in a court of law. Uh, intelligent reasoning is one definition. Properly, a well-reasoned reply, thought-out response uh, to adequately address the issue or issues that are raised, or a reasoned defense term for making a legal defense in an ancient court. Today, biblical ap- apologetics is used for. Supplying evidence is for the Christian faith. Uh, an apology in this context, in classical times, has nothing to do with saying I'm sorry, 
but rather a reasoned argument or defense that was presenting evidence supplied uh, or supplying compelling proof. Uh, so here we see this breakdown helping us understand the context of, we assume, Peter's words. It is clear that all believers are to be equipped with the ability to defend the faith. Our shield is to be an intelligent reason defense and one made in gentleness and respect. Not an easy task, but one we've all been given nonetheless. Let's take a look at more supporting verses throughout Scripture, helping us to focus in on exactly how this should be accomplished. Uh, Jude verses 3 through 4, and then 22 and 23. <clears throat> Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 22. Also have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So we see here in Jude, writing to believers who were surrounded by heretics teaching the original hyper-grace, or gracist, if you will, message. Uh, in other words, they were saying grace means that the moral law goes out the window. Where do we hear that today? Um, sadly, we do see that a lot in the message resurfacing in our modern church. Jude, Jude urged them to be able to defend the original teaching handed down from the apostles. You'll notice a few other things in this verse as well, how the gospel was delivered once and for all, meaning there is no further revelation coming. We have what we need already without any supplementation outside of the Bible ever. Secondly, it's easy to associate the ungodly people he's talking about with, at the time, the Gnostics, who were among the first to twist the, Bible, the gospel and pervert it. Their influence can be felt through all of history well into the present day. Not to mention that many other perversions of the gospel throughout the score of centuries since Christ's resurrection Islam, Mormonism, partially Catholicism, to name a few. For believers battling in intellectual doubts, apologetics can be a great mercy and, a, and help save their faith. A great place for doubting believers to turn is studying apologetics, which can help save their faith. We see this principle in action in the ministry of Jesus. The main focus of Christian apologetics seems to focus on two things, an intelligent reason defense and proper conduct. Titus chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here Paul is giving a checklist of qualifications for elders slash overseers, those who shepherd the brethren, should not only be able to teach sound doctrine, but also refute those who oppose it. Strong believers need apologetics as much as new believers, if not more so, since it is their job to help protect the flock against such teaching. But going off notes here a little bit, I feel it is important to state here that this isn't talking about a position of 
head pastor or senior, senior global pastor or anything like that. Simply those who oversee the church, which should be mature Christians. That's all there really is to it. Um, 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who would call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If this verse doesn't tell you that the enemy isn't our fellow man who is simply deceived, I don't know what does. I like this verse in 2 Timothy specifically because it drives home the point that's being made in so many other places we've seen already. There are two clear main focuses to Christian apologetics. Intelligent reasoned defense, reasoned defense alongside proper conduct. We get an excellent, excellent explanation here of what that conduct should look like. Colossians 4, uh, verse 5 and 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Another great follow-up here by Paul in regard to conduct. The Bible calls us to do so, to do so much more than believe. That is where our salvation begins. But the story doesn't end there, or at least it shouldn't. We are to be wise, speaking graciously, seasoning our words with flavor that appeals to each individual person. Excuse me. Now you're probably having the same thought I did after reading this the first time, how easy it is to take this verse out of context and turn to phrases like winsome and seeker-sensitive. Uh, we all see the pitfalls there, as evident by megachurches today, packed full of empty hearts and minds. Fortunately, we do not have to read far to understand this is not the message Paul is preaching here or anywhere, as we'll see in many examples shortly. Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning instead daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. <coughs> Excuse me. Some people in the modern, modern church will tell you that you can't reason or argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. They'll teach that if you're just a nice person, then people will eventually give you the time of day. That's not the way Paul operated. And thank goodness he didn't. He proactively went into the synagogues and used his ability to persuade from the Bible that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Acts 17, 2-4 says this was his custom. Now, this is technically not apologetics. This is evangelism, since Paul is going out of his way to find non-believers. However, this is akin simply to putting himself in the right position on the battlefield. He still needs his shield, regardless of how he finds himself in the place where he was required to make a defense for his faith. A noteworthy aspect of this text is that when some 
of the Jews turned on Paul, he didn't continue on in the same place, in the same way, knowing his words were having little impact. Remember, apology is grounded in intelligent defense. And where you choose to make your stand is every bit as important as being skilled in doing so. Instead of fighting a losing battle before the entire congregation, we see that he had set up shop in a lecture hall on his own terms, surrounded by his brothers, and had an open forum for the next two years until everyone in the area had heard the gospel. The venue here was clearly important. Daily discussions indicate that Paul wasn't just preaching at people, he was having conversations over spiritual things with whoever was willing to hear. This sounds an awful like an awful lot like debates, which leads us to our next passage. Now a Jew, uh, excuse me, Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, uh, competent in the scriptures. Understand that the scriptures being spoken about here have nothing to do with the New Testament. This is Old Testament knowledge. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, we'll go with that, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Have you ever watched a great debater, such as the uh, famous John Lennox or William Lane Craig, and feel that sensation, wow, I was just taken to church? You probably came away feeling strengthened after witnessing the other side's argument fall apart like a Husker offensive line while the Christian side came out smelling like a rose, even after tough scrutiny. Luke, by the Holy Spirit in this passage, calls this great help to the believer. And that's pretty awesome. Apologetics can help persuade skeptics, but it also builds up the church. A side note here of mine, I really appreciate seeing women actively supporting a brother by calling him out in the proper manner, not in a public forum, but as an aside. It promotes the proper roles of men and women in the kingdom of Christendom, as well as shows strong support among brethren. It's very same team vibes going here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. That's metal. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Believers often apply this verse to guarding their own thought life. I'm not at all saying that this is wrong, but that's not the actual context of the verse. Paul was concerned over the Corinthians being taken up with apostles who were flashy but empty talkers. He was saying that through the wisdom of God, he would destroy their arguments. Sound like Paul would have made it in a lot of YouTube clips like Ben Shapiro if he was alive today. I can see it now. Paul of Tarsus destroys and rips to shreds religious opponents with logic and facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> Apologetics is a major way of doing spiritual warfare. It is being able to deconstruct arguments mm -hmm. 
and pretentious arguments that trip people up and keep them out of the kingdom. Note here as well, the conditioning plays a role, that conditioning plays a role in this passage. Not only are we to take up the shield of apologetics in defense of the way, but only by training ourselves via taking every thought captive and punishing our own disobedience are crucial to conducting ourselves accordingly. Uh, let's see, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 9, 10. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule head of all rule and authority. C.S. Lewis famously said, good philosophy must exist, if for no other reason, because bad philosophy must be answered. The Christian is daily at war with the hollow and deceptive philosophies of our time. Moral relativism, religious pluralism, nihilism, naturalism, spiritualism, critical theory, Marxism, materialism, and atheism. The list goes on. These things have had a major impact on individuals and our society. Our job is to give the world a real alternative, the real and only true alternative. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some in the past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certain certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I love how right off the bat here, Luke is clear that he's not messing around. This is his work, and this is why he's doing it. The brethren need to know the truth, to help solidify their faith, to equip them with their shield against the endless lies of the day. Luke's not writing fairy tales or folklore here. He is interviewing eyewitnesses. He's carefully investigated everything and been meticulous with his research. He's writing as a historian, giving a thorough report so that our confidence in what we believe would be increased. Luke is arguably one of, if the not number one reason we can confirm so much of what we historically know to be true about the life of Christ. Remind me to thank him for that one day. 1 Peter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Similar to Luke's prologue, Peter isn't spinning some pious myth or fable here. His message is based on, what, on, on eyewitnesses as well, him being one of them you're beginning to see here the core tenets of a good apologetic argument. This isn't about feelings, it is about facts. Feelings can certainly and should be a byproduct, but apologetics should be our great defense. Our faith is all about one thing, the truth. And there's no way to, greater way to discern that than through the writings of a man who was there and lived by Christ's side. What a blessing to have the writing of any apostles, let alone as many as we do. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, I think he's making a point here, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is encouraging a church that is going through a rough time. Some believers were abandoning their faith in Jesus because of the creeping in Gnostic philosophy around them that taught that flesh is bad and the spirit is good. Another lie built partially on truth, but then takes a hard left turn. There's truly nothing new under the sun. Considering Jesus was resurrected in the flesh, this, of course, is a big problem. He appeals to them by the truth of Christ that he experienced with his own senses. He wasn't preaching a spiritually shadowy, a spiritual shadowy Jesus. And again, John is in the big leagues. He was there. He couldn't be more clear. He heard, he saw, he touched, he felt... And now he is compelled to spread this news to all, so we may all be in fellowship with Christ. Amen to that. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. <coughs> for I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. They, oh, look at typo. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. At the time of this writing, of course. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here Paul gets to the meat of the issue, the central claim of the gospel. Christ has been raised. If you boil down our faith to one single thing, this is it. If Christ isn't raised, Paul says the whole Christian faith is a bad joke and a waste of time. 1 Corinthians 15.14 as well as 15.17. And he would be right. Here Paul pulls out the big guns and makes a massive statement that if it were not true, would be so easy to disprove. He gives the list of... Uh, off a host of resurrection appearances to individuals and groups. The creed by Paul claiming so many hundreds of people witness Christ resurrected has become the linchpin for most arguments for the his historicity of the resurrection, and with good reason. It's as bold as a statement as any religion has ever claimed. <coughs> I am not sure if I'm going to make it. <coughs> uh, Romans 1, verses 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here Paul says there's some revelation freely available to everyone, everywhere. So much so that no man has an excuse. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. The word excuse here, ironically enough, is apologia, which is the same word we get apologetics from. In other words, unbelievers have no defense for their rejection of God. If claiming over 500 people witnessed Christ in the flesh after his resurrection wasn't a bold claim, then this certainly is. No man has an excuse not to believe in God. Paul's arguing that there's simply too much evidence to deny the truth. How foreign a thought this is to even modern Christians. How many times do we hear the argument, how can God truly be loving if someone is never told about the gospel? And we so sheepishly agree with the assumption within the question, which Paul here adamantly denies. No man is without excuse. Full stop. We should be able to look around at God's creation and know someone masterful is at work behind it. And yet here we are in the most godless, materialist society to ever exist, whose keystone is that everything came from nothing. Truly, our society claims to be wise while becoming fools. Psalm 19, uh, verses 1 through 4, very likely the verse Paul had in mind uh, in his previous statement. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. The very existence of an orderly, fine-tuned universe created in the finite past speaks volumes, and you really have to plug your ears to say that it came about as a purely natural process. The truth of God's existence was no secret to the Hebrew, nor the pagan in the days before Christendom. Even those who fought against God the hardest back in those days knew that God was real. They simply chose to follow lesser gods instead, denying the truth that Yahweh was the God, the great I Am. How far mankind has fallen. Philippians 1, second half of verse 16, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. A short snippet of a verse from Paul's letter to the Philippians here, but a crucial one in our study tonight. It's easy to argue that Paul was the first great apologist, and while others of the apostles certainly came into their own, no other man in history had or, or will have as great an impact on our hearts and minds of, of the people of the world in his day and a score of centuries later than the Apostle Paul. Notice here that Paul was writing this letter from prison. He used the words rejoice and joy over and over again. And he says he's there for the defense of the gospel. Even being put in a dirty, dark prison wasn't going to stop Paul from proclaiming and defending the gospel with joy. He knew his purpose and it's always good to remind yourselves why we are put here. If you need any one person to draw inspiration from to bring you into the world of apologetics, there is no greater example than Paul.
transitioning here into how do we make our defense? We've looked at a lot of scripture that gives us a lot of context for how it should be done and how it has been done in the past. But here we have a quote by one of my favorite apologists, J. Warner Wallace. Um, he is a, J. Warner is a cold case homicide detective, was once an atheist and decided to dive into the evidence for Christianity, and came out not only as a believer, <coughs> but one of the great apologists, or as he puts it, case makers of our day. Below is the, well, here's the full quote from him about what he calls a two-decision Christian. I think most of us understand what a one-decision Christian is. That, oh boy, that's when we make a decision to trust Christ for our salvation. And most of us who are Christians would, of course, say that we have done that. But what comes next? What are we as people who've made the first decision to accept Jesus as Savior to do now? Is there another decision we ought to make? I think scripture is clear. Most of us, for example, would say that we feel bad that we don't share our faith as much as we ought to. In other words, we feel like we're not the evangelist we ought to be. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that some of us are pastors, some are teachers, some of us are evangelists, which means some of us aren't any of those things. We've all been gifted differently, and God understands that. We've been called to share the truth about Jesus, but these traditional roles described by Paul in Ephesians, Ephesians 4 aren't for everyone. But Peter takes a different approach in 1 Peter 3. He is much more inclusive. He doesn't write that some of us need to be ready to give a reason for the hope we have. He says all of us need to be ready, regardless of our giftings. It is not an option for us to leave this to other members of the church. <coughs> so we might say, well, I'm not a great evangelist, but I don't really need to work at that because, you know, Billy Graham, he was called to do that kind of thing. But when it comes to making a defense for the joy we have in Jesus, we have a great responsibility. We're not off the hook when it comes to being a casemaker. We're all called to be casemakers. Peter didn't write that some of us have this responsibility. He said all of us need to make a decision to defend what we believe. And that's the second decision I'm talking about. If you don't make two decisions, a decision to trust Christ and then the decision to make a case for what you believe about Christ, you are living an abbreviated Christian life. If you don't make two decisions, uh, oh, I just wrote that. Do you want to make a cultural impact? Do you want to help your kids be able to resist the offerings of a world opposed to the Christian worldview? Then you need to make the second decision. So, um, getting more into the definition of apologetics here, there are substantially more than four, uh, but most of them are rooted in one of the four we'll be discussing here. Uh, classical apologetics is the oldest type of Christian apologetics. It uses philosophical arguments to prove the existence of God and argues that the Christian God is the only logical choice. Classical apologists argue that the reason, that reason and faith are not in conflict and that the reason can be used to support faith. For instance, classical apologists could use the cosmological argument, which we'll discuss shortly, uh, which argues that everything in the universe must have a cause, that the cause must be God. Another example is the moral argument, which 
argues that objectively, objective morality exists and that this morality must have come from God. So if we are to take up our shield and the mantle of defender of our faith of a Christian casemaker, this is where we start. First thing is understanding the basics of how to apply Christian apologetics. This is, of course, the first one, classical apologetics. Uh, next one is evidential. This focuses on using evidence from history, science, and other fields to support the truth of Christianity. It argues that there is enough evidence to support the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus, and Christian beliefs. Evidential apologists also believe that faith and reason can work together. Evidential apologists might use the argument from prophecy, a very good one, which argues that the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Jesus is evidence for the truth of Christianity. Another example is the argument from design, which argues that the complexity of the universe and the human body are also evidence of intelligent design. Thirdly is presuppositional apologetics, which differs from the other types of Christian apologetics because it starts with the belief that Christianity is true and then argues from there. In other words, followers of Jesus already presuppose that he is the Son of God and the Bible is, inspired, is the inspired inerrant word of God. Presuppositional apologetics believes that everyone has a set of presuppositions or to presuppose something. Uh, beliefs that they start with, and these beliefs shape how they interpret evidence. It argues that Christianity is the only set of presuppositions that make sense in the world. For example, presuppositional apologists may contend that the existence of objective morality in the human consciousness can only be explained by the existence of God. Another example is the transcendental argument, which argues that the existence of logical and moral absolutes can only be explained by the existence of God. Presuppositional apologetics can also be what other forms of apologetics ultimately lead to. Philosophers can reason using classical or evidential apologetics to build up the case that leads them to accept that the Bible is trustworthy or that Jesus is God. <coughs> and from there, presupposition arguments will come from a place of authority rather than outside authority. Okay, lastly in this grouping is a version called fideism. Now, right off the bat, I want to say that I think this method sucks. Right. I feel it can be very, well, let's see, what did I write here? Feel it can be very simple. It can be successful, but I feel that its core reasoning is ultimately futile because an argument, because it's essentially an argument for blind faith. However, it is a popular method, so it's worth mentioning. Fideism is a type of Christian apologetic that emphasizes faith over reason, uh, which, according to our interpretation of faith, doesn't really make sense. Uh, fideists argue that, the faith is, that faith is a gift from God and that we cannot use reason to understand God. It believes that reason is limited and cannot fully understand, yeah, fully understand God, and that we must rely on faith alone. For example, fideists argue that we cannot understand the Trinity or the nature of God, which is technically true, uh, but we must trust in God's revelation of Himself through the Bible. Another example of this argument from is from personal experience. 
<coughs> which argues that individuals can only genuinely understand God through their personal experience with him. Each of these four types of apologetics offers a unique approach to defending and explaining the Christian faith. Classical apologetics relies on philosophical arguments. Evidential apologetics uses evidence from various fields. Presuppositional apologetics, apologetics start with the belief that Christianity is true. And fideism emphasizes feelings over reason. All of these approaches share the same ultimate goal of helping people understand and believe in Christianity, but of course differ in their methods and assumptions. Whether one uses uh, reason or feelings to study, the study of apologetics seeks to provide evidence and support for the Christian faith. Uh, these are but four core types from dozens that fall within these types, but there is usually some overlap with other forms that you may see. So here are a few arguments um, that fit within the context of uh, these apologetic schools. Uh, first one is the moral argument. This is an argument that asserts that objective moral values and duties exist and that re they require a transcendent source. If God does not exist, <coughs> there can be no objective moral value and duties. And morality is merely a human invention which an atheist would certainly argue. However, since objective morality does exist, there must be a God who is the source of this morality. Next is the fine-tuning of the universe. Fine-tuning argument is based on the observation that the universe's fundamental constants and physical laws are precisely tuned to permit the existence of life. According to this argument, the probability of the universe's existence being fine-tuned in such a way is, I have written exceedingly small. It's so much smaller than that. And it is unlikely to have happened by chance. Again, much less than unlikely. Better chance of winning the lottery. Uh, winning the lottery like 13 quadrillion times or more. Uh, therefore, the existence of such a fine-tuned universe is evidence for the existence of a designer or creator. Uh, if you ever get turned on to an apologist who focuses on this defense, these statistics are astronomical, doesn't even cover it. it the, the numbers for even the most basic things will simply blow your mind. Uh, the design arguments or the <coughs> tel teleological argument, a lot of nice fun words in this, is the design, the design argument is similar to the fine-tuning argument, <clears throat> but it focuses on the complex and intricate design of living organisms. You might have heard the likelihood of the human eye to evolve or the orderly manner of DNA. According to this argument, the complexity and intricacy of the natural world are too sophisticated to have ever arisen by chance and therefore require an intelligent designer. Uh, the cosmological argument and the Callum cosmological argument, essentially the th same thing, the Callum argument simply expands on the cosmological argument, says, uh, asserts that everything that begins to exist had a cause. Argument then posits that the universe began to exist and therefore it must have had a cause. Argument asserts that the universe had a beginning and was not eternal, therefore must have had a cause for its beginning further suggests that the cause of the universe must be an uncaused, timeless and spaceless being, which is God. 
Uh, if you listen to Frank Turek ever, one of his favorite phrases is calling God the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover, which to be fair, I think he's borrowed from other apologists before him. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics uh, states that the universe is slowly losing energy and will eventually run out. Uh, and according to this argument, if the universe were eternal, it already would have run out of energy, and therefore it must have had a beginning. The beginning of the universe requires a cause, which is God. Uh, fulfilled biblical prophecy, getting more into the historical side. Uh, these are, there's so many examples. There's, uh, depending on what you consider prophecy, uh, between three to six hundred fulfilled prophecies that uh, Jesus fulfilled all of them. A few examples here are the Old Testament making many prophecies about the coming Messiah and, and to save his people were fulfilled, of course, by Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, performed many miracles, and died on the cross for the sins of humanity. Prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and this prophecy was fulfilled in the 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the city and the temple. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that the Israelites would be taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. This prophecy was, of course, fulfilled exactly as predicted. And the prophet Daniel predicted the rise and fall of several empires, including Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These prophecies were fulfilled with remarkable accuracy. Uh, the fulfillment of these prophecies is powerful evidence of the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. It demonstrates the Bible is not just a collection of human writings, but rather a divinely inspired document that contains accurate predictions of future events. It also shows that the God of the Bible is sovereign over history and is able to bring about his plans and purpose. It is worth noting that some skeptics have attempted to explain away the prophecies in the Bible as being vague or easily explained by natural events. However, these attempts are often very unconvincing and they fail to account for specific details and precise timing of many of the prophecies. It's also worth noting that many of these predictions about persons and events happened several hundred years before they occurred, particularly in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. Archaeologists have uncovered copies of the Old Testament books written long before he was born. The sheer number of fulfilled biblical prophecies is staggering. Scholars estimate that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament alone that were fulfilled by Jesus. These include his birth, lineage, miracles, death on the cross, and of course, his resurrection. In addition, there are many other prophecies <coughs> in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled throughout history, such as the rise and fall of empires, rebuilding of Jerusalem, spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. The sheer number is staggering, and the accuracy with which, with which they have been fulfilled. And this is all evidence of the divine origin of the Bible. The odds of so many prophecies being fulfilled by chance are beyond astronomical, even if you only had 48 of 300, say, about Messiah being fulfilled by one person, you would have the incomprehensibly large number of 1 in 10,157. How large is 10,157? Oh, I think that's supposed to be, excuse me, <laughs> the uh, math jargon didn't carry over. 10 to the 157th power. How large is that? It would be like the number one followed by 157 zeros. 
It is highly unlikely that these prophecies could have been fulfilled without the guidance and intervention of an all-powerful divine being. Uh, ooh, okay. Is that the same slide? No. Uh, okay, so the reliability of the New Testament documents. This argument focuses on the historical evidence of the reliability of the New Testament. According to this argument, the vast amount of manuscript evidence and the eyewitness accounts of these events recorded in the New Testament demonstrate its reliability and accurate historical record. There's a wonderful video that the people at the Ark Encounter have put together here that I think discusses this beautifully. Have you ever heard someone claim that the Bible's been through so many changes and so many revisions that we really can't know what the original message was? Let's use some coffee beans to illustrate a major problem with that argument. And what we're going to do is look at the manuscript evidence for some ancient writings compared to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. That is, we're going to be looking at the handwritten copies made before the days of the printing press for each of these works. For example, for Tacitus, he wrote his famous work called The Annals around the year AD 100. And the earliest copy we have for that comes from about 750 years later. So there's a 750 year gap between when it was written and our earliest copy. And how many copies do we have? Just two. So let's put two beans in this cup to represent those manuscripts. For Plato's dialogues, there's a 1200 year gap and we have just seven copies. For the histories by Herodotus, there's a 1300 year gap with just nine copies. And we have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars after a 900 year gap. Now, very few people question whether we have the original message of these writings, yet they constantly attack the Bible on this point. And yet the manuscript evidence we have for these is so minimal, and the gap between when they were written and when their earliest copies come from is enormous. So what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century AD, and the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it comes within 50 years of that time. Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there are nearly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts, and they average about 450 pages each. Looks like I should have used a bigger cup. But you know what? That's just the Greek manuscripts. When we count the other languages, like Latin, Coptic, and Armenian, there's another 20,000 manuscripts. I have a hard time believing that's 20,000 coffee beans. As I mentioned earlier, critics and skeptics rarely question whether we have the original message of these writings, and yet they frequently attack the Bible on this point. You know, it really just shows their bias. But when we look at the evidence before us, we see that their arguments really don't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> Um, Tim Chafee is just one of my uh, favorite people on this earth. He's an author as well and has wrote a great many things. Uh, specifically, some of my favorites are about giants in the Old Testament, which is quite humorous considering his partner, Ken Ham, uh, doesn't really believe in giants in the Old Testament at all. So, fun stuff. Anywho, um, 
So kind of to reflect a little bit on what he said there, the New Testament documents are the most well-preserved ancient text in existence. There are over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, as well as thousands of manuscripts in other languages. The earliest full manuscript date from the second date from the second century, excuse me, and there are fragments that date even earlier. All the way up to pieces copied from the Apostle John dated back to 900 100 AD. The New Testament documents were written by eyewitnesses and other individuals with direct access to eyewitnesses. The authors of the Gospels, for example, were either disciples of Jesus or had very close association with those disciples. The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the New Testament letters, had direct experiences with the risen Jesus. Um, good thing Tara's not here. It's almost 10 and 40. Uh, let's see. The New Testament documents are consistent with other historical sources. Many of the evidence of the events described in the New Testament, such as the life and death of Jesus, are also attested to by other sources, including real non-Christian historians, historians like Josephus and Tacitus. The New Testament documents are internally consistent. The four Gospels, for example, describe the many, many of the same events, but from a slightly different, different perspectives. These differences actually strengthen the case for the re reliability of the New Testament, as they demonstrate that the authors were eyewitnesses and were not colluding or simply copying from each other. Uh, the New Testament documents were written in a context where they were uh, many, the, when there were many other competing claims about Jesus and Christianity. Think about this. There were many other hostile eyewitnesses of Jesus, and when the disciples presented their testimonies about Christ, their enemies, such as the Sanhedrin and other Jewish religious leaders, could have proven them false, were they so. If the New Testament documents were not reliable, it is unlikely that they would have survived and become the foundation for a worldwide religion. Ultimately, the Bible is a collection of 66 books written in a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors across multiple genres, across three continents in three languages, all maintaining one consistent message. There is no work of history that ever comes close, nor will there ever be. So continuing to make a case for Christ and his creation, the resurrection of Jesus is, of course, the linchpin of our beliefs. His literal, literal physical, bodily resurrection is our central doctrine. According to this argument, the resurrection is a historical event that provides proof that Jesus' divine nature and the, tr and the truth of Christianity. Dwell on this for a minute. Jesus claimed to be God, and he claimed to be the only way to heaven. He claimed he had the power to forgive sins, and he said he would back up these claims by rising from the dead. So if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, then it validates those claims totally, and we should listen to what he has to say. According to the Bible itself, as discussed earlier, written by Paul, if there is no resurrection, the entirety of the Christian faith is invalidated. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Christ has not, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Uh, there are many arguments to be made for all aspects of the validity of Scripture, as well as many objections to overcome. For now, let's focus on just a few of the major objections 
to the keystone of the Christian faith, faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some skeptics argue that the resurrection is a myth that developed over time. They claim that the stories of the resurrection were embellished and altered by early Christian communities and that there is no historical evidence to support the resurrection. But there is strong historical evidence for the resurrection. The Gospels, which are primarily sources of information of the resurrection, were written within decades of Jesus' death. They're based on eyewitness accounts. They're consistent across all four Gospels, contain the details that would have been unlikely to be invented, such as the presence of women at the tomb before the men, and the fact that the disciples didn't really believe in the resurrection originally. Additionally, the resurrection is attested to by the many early Christian sources, including Paul's letters, which were, which were written within years of Jesus' death. The second objection is that the disciples were hallucinating. Well, hallucination theory is also unlikely. Hallucinations are usually experienced by individuals, not groups. I'll go so far as to say they are always experienced by individuals and not groups, and that they are not consistent across different people. The resurrection accounts in the gospel describe Jesus appearing to be appearing to many different people at many different times, <coughs> including groups of people. Furthermore, the resurrection accounts would have described Jesus, uh, they do have described Jesus eating and drinking with his disciples, which is not possible with a hallucinatory argument. Objection three, the body was stolen. Some skeptics argue that the disciples were, oh, that was last, sorry. Uh, the stolen body, stolen body theory is implausible. The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers and would have been difficult for anyone to have stolen the body from. Additionally, the disciples have no motive to steal the body as they didn't believe he was going to rise in the first place. And they weren't expecting, yeah. Furthermore, the resurrection accounts in the gospel describe Jesus appearing to his disciples over a period of 40 days, which would not have been possible had the body been stolen. When the dust settles, you will see that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact that is supported by strong historical evidence. The objections raised by skeptics can be easily addressed and refuted, demonstrating that the resurrection is a crucial element of the Christian faith. So where do we go from here? We've barely scratched the surface. And the good news is there are many, many apologists to learn from. Here's a list. Uh, it's great but not exhaustive of notable apologists in recent years, many who are alive today, uh, with several having transitioned to paradise with Christ. It should be stated that many of these apologists say and believe things that you and I will not agree with. But their work in the defense of the faith of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior deserve recognition as well as your attention. I personally have not had the pleasure of listening to all of them, but I am being exposed myself to more and more of them every day. Uh, some apologists I have gotten into, as well as I know a ladies group here is currently, uh, is J. Warner Wallace, who was that uh, cold case detective we discussed earlier, who was... Uh, was an atheist and through his studies became a Christian. Uh, his book, Cold Case Christianity, which, I'm sorry, Shanda, I just stole your book and gave it to my co-workers so she could read it, um, is <laughs> one of my favorites that meticulously, perfectly goes over many of the points we just made for the historicity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. 
Another one I read recently from one of my other favorite apologists, Frank Turek. Both of these gentlemen have podcasts as well for all of you podcast people, which I realize is most of us uh, that go into a lot of their works uh, very often. Stealing from God, uh, which I really enjoyed. Uh, it makes a case that the atheistic arguments against God have to use everything God created and gave them in order to make those arguments. Uh, wonderful book. I have not. I started with Stealing from God because it was the only one for free on the Hoopla app. Okay, um, that pretty much wraps up what I have to say today. I'm going to leave you with a little teaser of potentially uh, my next sitting here and talking a lotness. Uh, and this is the subject of deconstruction. Um, this is, in my opinion, the great greatest opponent of Christianity today. It is the antithesis of Christian belief. And as more and more Christians are less and less able to make a reasoned defense, deconstruction moves in and destroys their foundation, shattering their faith completely. We have to be able to make a case because if we can't, the enemy will devour us. Uh, deconstruction specifically is the walking away from historic Christianity doesn't matter where you end up as long as you leave Christianity. Uh, turning away and rejecting the core beliefs in our faith becomes a vehicle to take a former believer to anywhere, just not Christianity. Uh, typically decries that objective truth can't be known through religion or morality. And the theology is, uh, can be filtered through your feelings. Uh, the deconstructionist approach to scripture, uh, that dangerous start, to take you off the path, is that you can keep what you want, rewrite what you want to rewrite, and throw out everything else. Uh, one of the, I think, the great leading apologists on this subject uh, is uh, Elisa Childers. Again, she has, shoot, I think two podcasts, uh, one of which I listen to regularly. These are not books I've read personally, uh, but I'm very familiar with her as an author and know that she is one of the leading voices against deconstruction uh, again, this is an ec epidemic in the Christian faith and worth looking into to help protect yourself and your children against losing their faith. Perhaps a topic we can cover for another time. These are her two most recent books on the subject. Live Your Truth and Other Lies is more discussing basically the poisonous thoughts within this deconstruction that can leak into Christianity. And then her most recent one written this year. Uh, with Tim Barnett discusses deconstruction uh, as a whole. So that's all I have for tonight. Um, I went exactly as long as I hoped to, which was wonderful. Uh, if you would all would pray with me. Dear Lord, I hope and pray that my words tonight have been edifying, have been instructive, and at the very least, uh, turn people on to uh, you enough to be able to investigate for themselves and actually learn about apologetics instead of my meager attempt to teach them uh, a little bit about it. Um, I pray that you would give every person in this room the desire to pick up their shield and to learn to make a defense so that when the flaming arrows of the evil one come for them, they can brush them aside, brush them aside laughing and smiling with the weapon of war you have given us to overcome. In your name, amen.